Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, for part eight, chapter six. Lovely chapter. Music will do great things for Hanno, I think. Uh, TA1319010 says it's an interesting chapter because we hear that Goethe for the first, we hear from Goethe for the first time ever. We've seen very short glimpses of her. Yeah. But we did learn a bit about her in this chapter. That was kind of cool. I liked her immediately, getting to know Goethe better. Swim says, Mum Fishy says, I especially liked that she is open to new music. I found it funny that the teacher was so against this new music. Because it's just something that happens time and time and time again through history. People who are passionate about whatever their art form is are enraged when someone comes along and flips the script on them, you know, uh, and it was funny to see that happening with, like, classical music, which for, you know, from my point of view, 100 years later, classical music is just kind of, you know, classical music. I know it went through many eras, and I know that it evolved a lot, but still, it's not like Wagner came in and made dubstep. You know, he just did some slightly different classical music. Um, Techrific says openness, the hallmark of a true artist. I'd have to agree with that, yeah. Uh, will it do great things for Hanno? He's the sole viable male heir to the Buttonbrook firm. The tragedy here is that if there has been more male heirs, or if times had been different and women could have played a larger role, Hanno's obvious talent could have been allowed to blossom in peace instead. Thomas is apprehensive about the whole thing because he knows that Hanno is supposed to take over the firm. Hanno's tragedy isn't his sensitivity, but that his sensitivity and talent cannot have a natural place in family he was born into unless Goethe steps in and decides to take him away. I actually hope in vain that that is what will happen. Sadly, I think this is all doomed for Hanno. Swim says, I'm hoping Ander had his tongue firmly in his cheek. No way is Thomas on board with this. Oh, yeah, well, Thomas isn't on board with it. I guess my point was, like, I don't think Thomas is really on board with anything with young Hanno. And young Hanno seemed to me doomed to be miserable, you know. He was very, he's very sensitive. He loves the arts. He loves poetry, music. And, um, but hadn't so far really been able to find joy in that love and even though his father didn't approve of the performance of the music and probably never will he I just liked that Hanno seemed so at peace and happy during the performance making the music and that's what I meant by it would do good for him you know he's at least got that <coughs> because I don't think I was kind of coming from the point of view is I don't think Tom is really ever going to be happy with him as a as an heir. So, uh, like, it's good that he has something that he loves and that his mother is um, encouraging and his aunt and sort of the rest of his family. Oh, gosh. I'm getting sicker and sicker by the day, guys. Uh, it's not... The timing of this is so bad because... The chapters have just, like, quadrupled in length all of a sudden. Like, today's chapter's 14 pages. And up until this kind of 
phase of the book, a typical chapter was like three to six pages. So um, now they're 14-ish pages each, and that just perfectly coincided with me getting terribly, terribly sick. So it's a real slog doing these like half-hour readings when I can barely breathe. So if anyone wants to uh, help me out with a reading, read a chapter for me, um, just, you know, do it on your phone, record it, send me the MP3, I would very much appreciate it. Reach out if you are willing to, to help a brother out. Chapter 7 goes like this. Thomas Buddenbrook was, in his heart, far from pleased with the development of little Johann. Long ago he had led Gerda, Arnoldson to the altar, and the Philistines had shaken their heads he had felt strong and bold enough then to display a distinguished taste without harming his position as a citizen. But now, the long-awaited heir who showed so many physical traits of the paternal inheritance, did he, after all, belong entirely to the mother's side? He had hoped that one day his son would take up the work of the father's lifetime in his stronger, more fortunate hands and carry it forward. But now, it almost seemed that the son was hostile, not only to the surroundings and the life in which his lot was cast, but even to his father as well. Gerda's violin playing had always added to her strange eyes, which he loved, to her heavy dark-haired hair, and her whole exotic appearance, one charm the more. But now that he saw how her passion for music, strange to his own nature, utterly, even at this early age, possessed the child, he felt in it a hostile force that came between him and his son, of whom his hopes would make a Buttonbrook a strong and practice, practical-minded man, with definite impulses after power and conquest. In his present irritable state, it seemed to him that his hostile force was making him a stranger in his own house. He could not himself approach any nearer to the music practised by Gerda and her friend, her Ferl, Gerda herself exclusively and impatient where her art was concerned, made it cruelly hard for him. Never had he dreamed that music was so essentially foreign to his family as now it seemed. His grandfather had enjoyed playing the flute, and he himself always listened with pleasure to melodies that possessed a graceful charm, a lively swing, or a tender melancholy. But if he happened to express his liking for any such composition, Gerda would be sure to shrug her shoulders and say with a pitying smile, How can you, my friend? A thing like that without any musical value, whatever. He hated this musical value. It was a phrase which had no meaning for him, save a certain chilling arrogance. It drove him on in Hanno's presence to self-assertion. More than once he remonstrated angrily. This constant harping on musical values, my dear, strikes me as rather tasteless and opinionated, to which she rejoined, Thomas, once for all, you will never understand anything about music as an art, and intelligent as you are, you will never see that it is more than an after-dinner pleasure and a feast for the years. In every other field, you have a perception of the banal, in music not, but it is the test of musical comprehension. What pleases you in music? A sort of insipid optimism, which, if you met with it in literature, would make you throw down the book with an angry or sarcastic comment easy gratification of each unformed wish, prompt satisfaction before the will is even roused. That is what pretty music is like, and it is like nothing else in the world. It is mere flabby idealism. 
He understood her, that is, he understood what she said, but he could not follow her, could not comprehend why maladies which touched or stirred him were cheap and worthless, while compositions which left him cold and bewildered possessed the highest musical value. He stood before a temple from whose threshold Gerda sternly waved him back, and he watched while she and the child vanished within. He betrayed none of his grief over this estrangement, though the gulf seemed to widen between him and his little son. <coughs> the idea of suing for his child's favour seemed frightful to him. During the day he had small time to spare. At meals he treated him with a friendly cordiality that had at times a tonic severity, while comrade, he would say, giving him a tap or two on the back of the head and seating himself opposite his wife. Well, and how are you studying? Playing the piano, eh? Good, but not too much piano, else you won't want to do your task, and then you won't go up at Easter. Not a muscle betrayed the anxious suspense with which he waited to see how Hanno took his greeting, and with his reply would be, what his reply would be. Nothing revealed his painful inward shrinking when the child merely gave him a shy glance of the gold-brown shadowy eyes, a glance that did not even reach his father's face, and bent again over his plate. <coughs> it was monstrous for him to brood over this childish clumsiness. It was his fatherly duty to occupy himself a little with the child, so, while the plates were changed, he would examine him and try to stimulate his sense for facts. How many inhabitants were there in town? What streets led from the trave to the upper town? What were the names of the granaries that belonged to the firm? Out with it now. Speak up. But Hanno was silent, not with any idea of wounding or annoying his father, but these inhabitants, these streets and granaries, which were normally a matter of complete indifference to him, became positively hateful when they were made the subject of examinations. However lively he was beforehand, However gaily he had laughed and talked with his father, his mood would go down to zero at the first symptom of an examination, and his resistance would collapse entirely. His eyes would cloud over, his mouth taken on a despondent droop, and he would be possessed by a feeling of profound regret at the thoughtlessness of Papa, who surely knew that such tests came to nothing and only spoiled the whole mealtime for everybody. With eyes swimming in tears, he looked down at his plate. Ida would nudge him and whisper to him, the streets, the granaries, oh, that was all useless, perfectly useless. She did not understand. He did know the names, at least some of them. <coughs> Excuse me. It would have been easy to do what Papa asked, if only he were not possessed and prevented by an overpowering sadness. A severe word from his father and a tap with the fork against the knife rest brought him to himself with a start. He cast a glance at his mother and Ida and tried to speak, but the first syllables were already drowned in sobs. That's enough, shouted the senator angrily. Keep still, you needn't tell me. You can sit there dumb and silly all the rest of your life, and the meal would be finished in uncomfortable silence. When the senator felt troubled about Hanno's passionate preoccupation with his music, it was his dreaminess, this weeping, this total lack of freshness and energy that he fixed upon. All his life, the boy had been delicate. His teeth had been particularly bad and had been the cause of many painful illnesses and difficulties. It had nearly cost him his life to cut his first set. The gums showed a constant tendency to inflammation and there were abscesses which Mamselle Jungmann used to open with a needle at the proper time. 
Now his second teeth were beginning to come in and the suffering was even greater. He had almost more pain than he could bear and he spent many sleepless, feverish nights. His teeth, when they came, were as white and beautiful as his mother's, but they were soft and brittle and crowded each other out of shape when they came in, so that little Hanno was obliged, for the correction of all these evils, to make the acquaintance early in life with a very dreadful man, no less than her, Brech, the dentist in Mill Street. Even this man's name was significant. It suggested the frightful sensation in Hanno's jaw when the roots of a teeth tooth were pulled, lifted and wrenched out. The sound of it made Hanno's heart contract just as it did when he cowered in an easy chair in her breastures waiting room with the faithful Jungman sitting opposite and looked at the pictures in the magazine while he breathed in the sharp smelling air of the room and waited for the dentist to open the door of the operating room with his polite and horrible, won't you come in please? This operating room possessed one strange attraction, a gorgeous parrot with venomous little eyes which sat in a brass cage in the corner and was called for unknown reasons Josephus. He used to say, sit down one moment please, in a voice like an old fishwife's. And though the hideous circumstances made this sound like mockery, yet Hanno felt for the bird a curious mixture of fear and affection. Imagine a parrot, a big bright coloured bird that could talk and was called Josephus. He was like something out of an enchanted forest, like Grimm's fairy tales, which Ida read aloud to him, and when her breast opened the door, his invitation was repeated by Josephus in such a way that somehow Hanno was laughing when he went into the operating room and sat down in the queer big chair by the window next to the treadle machine. Her breast looked a good deal like Josephus. His nose was the same shape, above his grizzled moustache, the bad thing about him was that he was nervous and dreaded the tortures he was obliged to inflict. We must proceed to extraction, Fraulein, he would say, growing pale. Hanno himself was in a pale cold sweat with staring eyes, incapable of protesting or running away. In short, in much the same condition as a condemned criminal. He saw her breached with the forceps in his sleeve bend over him and noticed that little beads were sta- standing out on his bald brow and that his mouth was twisted. When it was all over, and Hanno, pale and trembling, splat, spat blood into the blue basin at his side, Herbrecht, too, had to sit down and wipe his forehead and take a drink of water. They assured little Johan that this man could do him good and save him suffering in the end, but when Hanno weighed his present pains against the positive good that had accrued from them, he felt that the former far outweighed the latter and he regarded these visits to Mill Street as so much unnecessary torture. They removed four beautiful white molars which had just come in to make room for the wisdom teeth expected later. This required four weeks of visits in order not to subject the boy to too great a strain. It was a fearful time, a long drawn out martyrdom in which dread of the next visit began before the last one with its attendant exhaustion was fairly over. When the last tooth was drawn, Hanno was quite worn out and was ill in bed for a week. This trouble with his teeth affected not only his spirits, but also the functioning of all his other organs. What he could not chew, he did not digest, and there came attacks of gastric fever, accompanied by fitful heart action, according as the heart was either weakened or too strongly stimulated, and there were spells of giddiness, while the pavonoctornus, that strange affliction beloved by Dr. Grabau continued on unabated. 
Hardly a night passed that little Johann did not start up in bed, wringing his hands with every mark of unbearable anguish and crying out piteously for help as though someone were trying to choke him or some other awful thing were happening. In the morning he had forgotten it all. Dr. Grabow's treatment consisted of giving fruit juice before the child went to bed, which had absolutely no effect. The physical arrests and the pains which Hanno suffered made him old for his age. He was what is called precocious. And though this was not very obvious, being restrained in him, as it were, by his own unconscious good taste, still it expressed itself at times in the form of a melancholy superiority. How are you, Hanno? Somebody would ask. His grandmother, or one of the Broad Street Brunbrooks, a little resigned curl of the lip or a shrug of the shoulders in their blue sailor suit would be the only answer. Do you like to go to school? No, answered Hanno, with quiet candour. He did not consider it worth while to try to tell a lie in such cases. No, but one has to learn writing, reading, arithmetic, and so on, said little Johan. No, he did not like going to school, the old monastic school with its cloisters and vaulted classrooms. He was hampered by his illness, and often absent-minded, for his thoughts would linger among his harmonic combinations, or upon the still unraveled marvel of some piece which he had heard his mother and her furl playing, and all this did not help him on in the sciences, these lower classes were taught by assistant masters and seminarists, for whom he entertained mingled feelings, a dread of possible future punishments, and a secret contempt for their social inferiority, their spiritual limitations, and their physical unkemptness. Her teach, a little grey man in a greasy black coat, who had taught in the school even in the time of the deceased Marcellus Stengel, who squinted abominably and sought to remedy this defect by wearing glasses as thick and round as a ship's portholes, her teached, told little Johann how quick and industrious his father had been at figures, her teached, had severe fits of coughing and spat all over the floor with his platform. Hanno had among his schoolmates no intimates save one, but his single bond was very close, even from these earliest school days. His friend was a child of aristocratic birth but neglected appearance, a certain Count Mollen, whose first name was Kai. Kai was a lad of about Hanno's height, dressed not in a sailor suit, but in, a sh in shabby clothes of uncertain colour, with here and there a button missing and a great patch in the seat. His arms were too long for the sleeves of his coat, and his hands seemed impregnated with dust and earth to a permanent grey colour, but they were unusually narrow and elegant, with long fingers and tapering nails. His head was to match, neglected uncombed and none too clean, but endowed by nature with all the marks of pure and noble birth. The carelessly parted hair, reddish-blonde in colour, waved from back from a white brow, and a pair of light blue eyes gleamed bright and keen from beneath. The cheekbones were slightly prominent, while the nose with its delicate nostrils and slightly aquiline curve, and the mouth with its short upper lip, were already quite unmistakable and characteristic. Hanno Buttonbrook had seen the little Count once or twice even before they met at school when he took his walks with Ida northward from the castle gate. Some distance outside the town, nearly as far as the first outlying village, lay a small farm, a tiny, almost valueless property, without even a name. 
the passer-by got the impression of a dunghill, a quantity of chickens, a dog hut, and a wretched kennel-like building with a sloping red roof. This was the manor house, and therein dwelt Kai's father, Count Eberhard Moln. He was an eccentric, hardly even seen by anybody, busy on his dunghill with his dogs, his chickens, and his vegetable patch. A large man in top boots with a green frieze jacket. He had a bald head and a huge grey beard, like the tail of a turnip. He carried a riding whip in his hand, though he had no horse to his name, and wore a monocle stuck into his eye under the bushy eyebrow. Except him and his son, there was no Count Mullen in all the length and breadth of the land any more. The various branches of a once rich, proud and powerful family had gradually withered off until now there was only an aunt with whom Kai's father was not on terms. She wrote romances for the family story papers under a dashing pseudonym. The story was told of Count Eberhard that when he first withdrew to his little farm he devised a means of protecting himself from the importunities of peddlers, beggars and busybodies. He put up a sign which read, Here lives Count Mullen, he wants nothing buys nothing and gives nothing away. When the sign had served its purpose, he removed it. Motherless, for the countess had died when her child was born, and the housework was done by an elderly female, little Kai grew up like a wild animal among the dogs and chickens, and here Hanno Buttonbrook had looked at him shyly from a distance as he leaped like a rabbit among the cabbages, romped with the dogs and frightened the fowls by turning somersaults. They met again in the schoolroom, where Hanno probably felt again his first alarm at the little Count's unkempt exterior, but not for long. A sure instinct had led him to pay no heed to the outward negligence, had shown him instead the white brow, the delicate mouth, the finely shaped blue eyes, which looked with a sort of resentful hostility into his own, and Hanno felt sympathy for this one alone among his, all his fellows. But he never would, by himself, have taken the first steps. He was too timid for that. Without the ruthless impetuosity of little Kai, they might have remained strangers after all. The passionate rapidity of his approach even frightened Hanno at first. The neglected little Count sued for the favour of the quiet, elegantly dressed Hanno with a fiery, aggressive masculinity impossible to resist. Kai could not, it is true, help Hanno with his lessons. His untamed spirits were as hostile to the tables as was little Buttonbrook's dreamy abstractedness. But he gave him everything he had, glass bullets, wooden tops, even a broken lead pistol, which was his dearest treasure. During the recess, he told him about his home and the puppies and chickens and walked with him at midday, as far as he dared, though Ida Jungman, with a packet of sandwiches, was already waiting for her fledgling at the school gate. It was from Ida and that Kai heard Little Buttonbrook's nickname. He took it up and never called himself henceforth by anything else. One day he demanded that Hanno, instead of going to the mill wall, should take a walk with him to his father's house to see the baby guinea pigs. Fraulein Jungmann finally yielded to the teasing of the two children. They strolled out to the noble domain, viewed the dunghill, the vegetables, the fowls, dogs and guinea pigs, and even went into the house where, in a long row, low room on the ground floor, Count Eberhard sat in defined isolation reading a clumsy table at a reading at a clumsy table. He asked crossly what they wanted. Ida Jungmann could not be brought to repeat the visit. She insisted that if the two children wished to be together, Kai 
could come visit Hanno instead. So for the first time, with honest admiration but no trace of shyness, Kai entered Hanno's beautiful home. After that he went often. Soon nothing but the deep winter snows prevented him from making the long way back again for the sake of a few hours with his friend. They sat in the large playroom in the second story and did their lessons together. There were long sums that covered both sides of the slate with additions, subtractions, multiplications and divisions and had to come out at zero in the end, otherwise there was a mistake, and they must hunt and hunt till they had found the little beast and exterminate him. Then they had to study grammar and learn the rules of comparison and write down very neat, tidy examples underneath. Thus, horn is transparent, glass is more transparent, light is most transparent. They took their exercise books and conned sentences like the following. I received a letter saying that he felt aggrieved because he believed that you had deceived him. The foul intent of this sentence, so full of pitfalls, was that you should write E-I where you ought to write I-E and contrariwise. They had, in fact, done that very thing, and now it must be corrected. But when all was finished, they might put their books aside and sit on the window ledge while Ida read to them. The good soul read about Cinderella about the prince who could not shiver and shake, about Rumpelstiltskin, about Rapunzel and the frog prince, in a deep, patient voice. Her eyes half shut, for she knew the stories by heart. She had read them so often. She wet her finger and turned the page automatically, but after a while, Kai, who possessed the constant craving to do something himself, to have some effect on his surroundings, would close the book and begin to tell stories himself. It was a good idea, for they knew all the printed ones, and Ida needed a rest sometimes too. Kai's stories were short and simple at first, but they expanded and grew bolder and more complicated with time. The interesting thing about them was that they never stood quite in the air, but were based upon a reality which he presented in a new and mysterious light. Hanno particularly liked the one about the wicked enchanter who tortured all human beings by his malignant art who had captured a beautiful prince named Josephus and turned him into a green and red parrot, which he kept in a gilded cage. But in a far distant land, the chosen hero was growing up, who should one day fearlessly advance at the head of an invisible army of dogs, chickens and guinea pigs and slay the base enchanter with a single sword thrust and deliver all the world in particular. Hanno Buttonbrook from his clutches... Then Josephus would be restored to his proper form and return to the kingdom, in which Kai and Hanno would be appointed the high office. Senator Buttonbrook saw the two friends together now and then, and he passed the door of the playroom. He had nothing against the intimacy, for it was clear that the two lads did each other good. Hanno, gentle, tamed, and ennobled Kai, who loved him tenderly, admired his white hands, and for his sake let Ida Yuman wash his own with soap and a nail brush and if Hanno could absorb some of this, his friend's wild energy and spirits he would be welcome for the senator realised keenly the constant feminine influence that surrounded the boy and knew that it was not the best means for developing his manly qualities the faithful devotion of the good Ida could not be repaid with gold she had been in the family now for more than 30 years she had cared for the previous generations with self-abnegation, but Hanno she carried in her arms, lapped him in tender care, and loved him to idolatry.
idolatry. She had a naive, unshakable belief in his privileged station in life, which sometimes went to the length of absurdity. In whatever touched him, she showed a surprising, even an unpleasant effrontery. Suppose, for for instance, she took him with her to buy cakes at the pastry shop. She would poke among the sweets on the counter and select a piece for Hanno, which she would coolly hand him without paying for it. The man should feel himself honoured indeed. And before a crowd crowded show window, she would ask the people in front in her West Prussian dialect pleasantly enough, but with decision to make a place for her charge. He was so uncommon in her eyes that she felt there was hardly another child in the world worthy to touch him. In little Kai's case, the mutual preference of the two children had been too strong for her. Possibly she was a little taken by his name, too. But if other children came up to them on the mill wall as she sat with Hanno on a bench, Fräulein Jungmann would get up almost at once, make some excuse or other, it was late, or there was a draft, and take her charge away. The pretext she gave to little Johann would have led him to believe that all his contemporaries were either scrupulous of full evil humours, and that he himself was a solitary exception, which did not tend to increase his already deficient confidence and ease his manner. Senator Buddenbrook did not know all the details, but he saw enough to convince him that his son's development was not taking the desired course. If he could only take his upbringing in his own hands and mould his spirit by daily and hourly contact. But he had not the time. He perceived the lamentable failure of his occasional efforts. He knew they only strained the relations between father and son. In his mind was a picture which he longed to reproduce. It was a picture of Hatterer's great-grandfather, whom he himself had known as a boy. A clear-sighted man, jovial, simple, sturdy, humorous. Why could not little Johann grow up like that? If only he could suppress a forbid or forbid the music which was surely not good for the lad's physical development, absorbed his powers and took his mind from the practical affairs of life. That dreamy nature did it not almost at times border on irresponsibility. One day, some three quarters of an hour before dinner, Hanno had gone down alone to the first story. He had practiced for a long time on the piano and now was idling about in the living room. He half lay, half sat on the chaise lounge. (coughs) Excuse me. Ah, chase lounge. Tying and untying his sailor's knot, and his eyes roving aimlessly about caught sight of an open portfolio on his mother's nutwood writing table. It was the leather case with the family papers. He rested his elbow on the sofa cushion and his chin in his hand and looked at the things for a while from a distance. Papa must have had them out after second breakfast and left them there because he was not finished with them. Some of the papers were sticking in the portfolio, some loose sheets lying outside where weighted with a metal ruler and a large gilt-edged notebook with the motley paper lay there open. Hanno slipped idly down from the sofa and went to the writing table. The book was open at the Buddenbrook family tree, set forth in the hand of his various forebears, including his father, complete with rubrics, parenthesis, and plainly marked dates. Kneeling with one knee on the desk chair, leaning his head with its soft waves of brown hair on the palm of his hand, Hanno looked at the manuscript sidewise, carelessly critical, a little contemptuous and supremely indifferent, letting his free hand toy with Mama's gold and ebony pen. 
His eyes roved all over these names, masculine, feminine, some of them in queer old-fashioned writing with great flourishes, written in faded yellow or thick black ink, to which little grains of sand were sticking. At the very bottom in Papa's small, neat handwriting that ran so fast over the page, he read his own name under that of his parents, Justus Johann Kaspar, born April 15, 1861. He liked looking at it. He straightened up a little and took the ruler and pen still rather idly, let his eye travel once more over the whole genealogical host. With absent care, mechanically and dreamily, he made with the gold pen a beautiful clean double line diagonally across the entire page, the upper one heavier than the lower, just as he had been taught to embellish the page of his arithmetic book. He looked at his work with his head on one side and then moved away after dinner, the senator called him up and surveyed him with his eyebrows drawn together. What is it? Where did it come from? Did you do it? Hanno had to think a minute whether he really had done it, and then he answered yes. What for? What's the matter with you? Answer me. What possessed you to do such a mischievous thing? cried the senator, and struck Hanno's cheek lightly with the rolled-up newspaper. Sorry, notebook, with the rolled-up notebook. And little Johann stammered, retreating with his hand to his cheek. I thought, I thought, there was nothing else coming. That's the end of the chapter. He thought there was no need for further additions to the family tree. He was the end of it, I guess. All right, there we go, another chapter. These longer ones, are they are good, like they are more engaging, but they're also bloody long. Anyway, thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.